Good evening. Thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, I was given an announcement uh, earlier from JC. Uh, Janice Paris is requesting prayer. She's suffering a little bit uh, more intensely with her bronchitis. So before we begin the lesson, let's have a prayer on her behalf. If you would, bow with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this fellowship here. And we thank you for our sister, Janice, who is not feeling well. We pray that her bronchitis will improve and that those who are tending to her will give her just exactly what she needs to make it a speedy and happy recovery. Help us to check in on her as we can and to give her what she needs. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Everybody here suffers from problems, challenges, sickness, as we just indicated, injury, temptations, troubles. And we all are in this together. To get over those, ultimately it involves waiting on the Lord, as Isaiah tells us. We also have a bunch of opinions. Um, I may have an opinion or two I state tonight that some in the audience do not share. And that's okay. We're brothers and sisters, and you don't have to agree with me on every opinion I hold. As I don't have to agree with you on every opinion you hold. Our, our subject tonight is truth and unity, and I'm going to try to treat that in as uh, biblical way as I possibly can. Um, you can go to the next slide there. This is my granddaughter. I don't know if you can see what she's holding there, but that's a $5 bill. That's why I called her the five-talent girl. Uh, We've had our share of concerns, and as I was indicating a minute ago, everybody on earth suffers, and you can't act like your suffering is worse than anybody else's. In any given moment, the, the suffering you're dealing with may be challenging. But wait on the Lord, trust in the Lord, and things do ultimately, especially in the after a while, work out, if not here. I'm going to ask four questions tonight and then give four short answers. But before the answers, I will have some comments about truth and reason. Acts chapter 26 indicates that Paul spoke such words, truth and reason, when he was giving his defense to Festus and Agrippa. So here are the four questions. What is the point of our gathering here tonight? Why are we here? Number two, would our lives be irreparably worse, and would God be shortchanged or disappointed if the congregation assembled only once per week on Sunday? Three, what does it mean to be unified of one mind? What does it not mean? And four, why would any currently unchurched person in our community be persuaded because of what we say and do here to follow Jesus? 
The answers to these questions bear upon our sanity and upon our reasonableness. Though the religion of Christ is steeped in faith and hope and grace and love, it is also based in truth and reason. Jesus claimed to be truth. God is not afraid of the rational, curious mind. He created it. We Christians need to be truthful and rational. Every person on earth begins life having been fearfully and wonderfully made and made in the image of God. That's every person. But it's not long until down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving hand, awakened by kindness, cords that were broken will vibrate once more. The unchurched, unrescued perishing of our community, though in need of God's grace, may not want it. How do we get them to see what we see? First, know why you believe. Here's two reasons I believe. Look at the universe. Some entity did, is doing this. Second reason for me, the biblical record is reliable and reasonable and intriguing. Now, there's another whole lesson about how we got the Bible and why we can think it's reliable, but I'm just going to let that statement stand on its own, and I'm going to presume that all of you all agree with me. 2 Peter 1, 6 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So that's the Apostle Peter emphasizing the close connection to the words in Scripture. Hebrews 1.3, He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then this next reference is a song that we'll sing momentarily, We Saw Thee Not. Uh, The last verse of that song is one of my favorites. I I like that song from my childhood. I don't know that we sing it much anymore, but uh, I uh, arm wrestled Carter into leading that one for us, so uh, it's my fault if you don't like it. But here's the last verse. We walk not with the chosen few who saw thee from the earth ascend, who raised to heaven their wondering view, then low to earth all prostrate bend. But we believe the human eyes beheld the journey, that journey to the skies. So how do we get them to see what we see? Know why you believe. Also, do good unto all people especially those of the household of faith. 
Now, that's not always easy because people are kind of not kind. They might not even like us. But a mark and how we can draw people from the outside to Christ is follow that principle from Galatians 6.10. Also, recognize that citizenship in heaven far surpasses any, any earthly allegiance. And then, fourth, make every effort to be holy and be truthful. Why is being truthful so important? Christians being truthful is important because unchurched folk will not see Jesus if we shade the truth. It indicates that we don't really believe that the truth will set you free. One seed of deceit can wreak all manner of ill. Just look at American politics. In John 8.44, Jesus tells us that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Purposeful misinformation gives the devil a foothold. Christians are to speak the truth in love. You know, it's the devil who is our adversary, not fellow human beings. Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Paul says, and this is a peculiar one to me, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, humans, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want to take a moment here to emphasize there are evil people in the world. We turn on the news, see that. See world-scale evil going on. But even those people aren't ultimately the enemy of mankind. It is the devil. He is seeking to devour every human on earth, Christians and otherwise. Hateful, mean, unjust, and sinful people are not our enemy. Again, the devil is. Those folks can be challenging, but they also can become our brothers. You don't have to think very much further than Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, to see how a mean-spirited, perhaps misguided, almost vicious man was wreaking havoc on the church, and Jesus set him straight on the road to Damascus. If you're like me, you wish a lot of people would have a road to Damascus experience. Maybe we all could benefit from that, but uh, there's some who you think really could. Now, back to the questions. Uh, Here are the answers. First, the question was, what is the point of our gathering here tonight? Why are we here? We're here to praise and to honor God. 
and we're here to stir one another up to love and good works. We desire to express our love and admiration of God. It is a privilege, not a burden, and we're not really required to be here tonight. It's an opportunity to show our love and devotion to God. Second question, would our lives be irreparably worse and would God be shortchanged or disappointed if the congregation assembled only once per week on Sunday? No. Since God needs nothing of what we might give him, if we don't show up for some good and profitable activity, it's our loss, not his. Acts 17, 24 to 25 says this. This is Paul talking to the men of Athens who were polytheistic. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. How often churches assemble and how many choose to attend is a matter of opinion. Remember, God does not need our worship. Corporate worship of two or three together or 2,000 assembled can praise and honor God and build up one another. Jesus, the head of the church, has given no prescription for the times or goings-on of the assembled church. 1 Samuel 15.22, it appears that God is more interested in our daily life than in our obedience. He is more interested in our obedience than he is in our sacrifice. And I'm assuming you all can read that up there. I'll do my best. The Lord has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the word of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So when we offer up our worship collectively, uh, that's not nearly so important as us giving our obedience to God day in, day out, week in and week out on an individual basis. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm just saying it's not nearly so important as that. Question three. What does it mean to be unified of one mind? What does it not mean? To be unified is to be brought closer together. Our country has a motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. It's a great motto, and I guess at times throughout history we've gotten closer to living up to it, but uh, we may not be feeling the epitome of that sentiment at at this time in our country. Uh, Paul tells the Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female in Christ, for we are all one in Christ. Here's a, uh, I was going to get a visual aid on this, but I'm just going to ask you to use your mind's eye. Uh, 
when I was trying to think about how we all could be unified on what really matters, I, I thought of this image. Imagine a circle, and the midpoint is Jesus. And each one of us is a dot on the circle itself, or the, their circumference. Now, the fastest way for all of us to get to the midpoint is to just go straight down a radius from the edge of the circle right down to the center. It's the fastest, most efficient, uh, most likely route to the midpoint. Uh, if I'm at, at the 12 o'clock position on the circle and Steve is at the 6 o'clock position on the circle, to get to Jesus, I don't need to go around the periphery to line up with Steve and then go in. It'd be better if Steve left from 6 and I left from 12 and we both went in toward the middle. Now, I use that analogy to say that if we want to ex exhibit unity to the world around us, each one of us individually on that circle needs to be aiming right for the middle. The more I aim for the middle, the more I walk down that radius towards Jesus, the more alike we're all going to be. If, if you, we stay out here on the edge and, or jump off the edge, that'd be a bad move. But uh, anyway, go toward the center. Don't try to uh, be like me. It'll be a, you'll be a miserable failure. I do know that Paul said, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But he wasn't saying, be like me. He was saying, be like Christ as I'm being like Christ. It's, it's a little, you've got to look at that one close. In spite of any dissimilarities, we recognize Jesus as Lord. If, if people understood that each one of us individually made Jesus the Lord of our lives, sure, we're going to make mistakes because we're humans. But being unified on that big concept that Jesus is Lord, as opposed to we all agree on every nuance of what we do, uh, I think that will have... Uh, a positive effect on those who are in the unchurched community. And then finally, why would any currently unchurched person in our community be persuaded because of what we say and do here? Actually, not there yet. I want to say one more thing about uh, question three, about being unified. It doesn't mean that we will agree on everything, but it does mean it does mean we will pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It does mean you will not pass judgment on your brother, nor will you destroy the one for whom Christ died. I'm going to tell you that's both of those uh, references, or all three of them, are from Romans 14. That is a mouthful chapter. We probably ought to read that every week because you will go back and forth in your mind about, hey, wait a minute, what I'm doing isn't wrong. Why do I need to not do that? Well, there are times when 
you may have the right to do something, but it actually damages the faith of your brother. You're not acting in love, Paul says, if you persist in that. Now, we have to be careful as we're looking at that uh, chapter, who's weak, who's strong, uh, what, what is the subject. In that particular passage, there was uh, the notion of eating meats offered to idols. Uh, there was one man esteems one day above another, and another man esteems all days the same. Uh, a proper treatment of Romans 14 is a humbling experience. And here, I'll just say this. I'm looking at a fine crowd of people out here. I want to be in heaven with Jesus and all of you and everybody you all love someday. And I think that's what you want too. If we can exhibit that sentiment and mentality to the world at large, I think they will be drawn to Jesus. They're not particularly concerned that we have a book, chapter, verse retort for every subject they may bring up. The more each of us submits to Christ, the more unified we will be. Now, the fourth question. Why would any currently unchurched person in our community be drawn by what we say and do? Well, that's only going to happen if our genuine and compassion and concern for their welfare is obvious. Uh, Andy spoke to, to some of that uh, last week, and uh, I will say this. Uh, the sermon this morning, Andy, was outstanding. Um, my dear friend and just constant supporter, Richard Dykus, told me I should probably suggest we do a singing tonight and not follow that. And you may be thinking that too, but we're about done. So we have, our compassion and concern needs to be obvious. Imagine for a minute you're one of the unchurched. What would I have to say or do to get you to believe in Jesus, particularly in his deity? Well, it's pretty simple, but it's also hard. Each of us needs to live and talk like Jesus. We've got to be kind, loving, forgiving, and holy. As we like to sing, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. I believe in the deity of Christ because I trust the words of the Bible to be faithful and true. And the Bible says Jesus did many signs and wonders that mankind might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have, might have life in his name. John chapter 20. The last wonder of Jesus is revealed in Acts chapter 1. You can go to that next slide there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus said to the apostles, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I believe that's true. I believe that human eyes beheld that journey to the skies. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, give yourself to him and wait on him. He will cause your life to mount up with wings like eagles. That's the lesson. I love you all. The Lord loves us. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, come as we stand and sing.